Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics by honest conversations. This week we're going to be looking at county lines and I'm chatting to Danielle Marin. Danielle grew up in London with first generation immigrant parents. She was accepted into a grammar school, however her life changed completely after a brutal attack led her to involvement with gangs and drug crime. She later enrolled at university and graduated with a first. She has since advocated within the criminal justice system for many women, the hidden victims and participants of organised crime, and began her master's in 2021. Her book, Top Girl, is truly one of the best books I've read this year. In fact, it cost me an awful lot of sleep because I was staying up way, way, way past my bedtime reading it. I couldn't recommend it more. There we are, that's an excruciating bit. And also, having read your book, as I give that kind of bio for you, it really doesn't actually encapsulate anywhere near like the, the, the life that you've lived, even though it sounds a lot. Yeah, it, it's literally long story, very short. I, guess. I mean, yeah, it's just like things written in a few sentences. You, yeah, you've, you've been through some wild things. Before I get like deep into it, I always start with three quite easy questions. Mm-hmm. How are you really? What's your star sign, and what's your favorite crisp? Interesting. Um, how am I really? I'm genuinely really happy yeah genuinely I mean life has ups and downs but I've never been so happy than I am right now so that's obviously fair um star sign I'm typical stubborn Taurus (laughs) oh yeah Taurus season it is Taurus season yeah so birthday's coming up which is nice and um my favorite crisp I'm a I'm a ready salted girl Walkers or not bothered about a brand? Not really Pringles, Hula yeah. Hoops, Walkers, any crisp, but just plain ready salted. No, you can't go wrong with a ready salted. No. That's, that's what you learn in later in life. It's like, I know what I like. Yes. I mean, the problem with Pringles is really those big packets are a nightmare. I actually just don't let my kids have them because once you start, you really can't stop on them, can you? Oh, no, I'll eat a whole thing. But now I've seen it going around on social media. A lot of people are complaining because as you get older, you can't fit your hand in the tube anymore. So, yeah, (laughs) sad times. Oh, my word. Yeah, maybe they're completely marketed for kids. We never really thought about that. It's quite dark. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about county lines. And for anyone listening who doesn't know what that means, can you give us a, a, a kind of easy explanation of what that is? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, county lines is not something I ever heard. That's sort of what it's dubbed as by professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have said I'm going cunt, country, cunch, OT. And it basically is when you are literally crossing county lines, so county borders, to leave your area and sell drugs in another area. And predominantly is that like moving from inner cities out into the countryside? Um, yes, I think that's what it is. I think now it might have changed slightly, but from what I knew it as is it was sort of Londoners leaving yeah. and going northeast, south or west out of London to yeah find drugs in a countryside location. And what I found wild is that, um, well, I mean, there's so much that blew my mind, but but this is business. This is there is no um, casual undertaking with this. Is it? It's like these. This is where we're going to go. This is where we're going to create a whole new load of business by getting drugs out into the community and and creating a whole new yeah load of customers. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely organized like a workplace it's Mm. it's, this isn't for fun you know you literally have shift patterns um and yeah it's quite taxing it's literally 
as you said earlier, organised crime. Yeah, it's, and when... So I don't know how to go about this. How did you find yourself involved with it, I guess, is the the, the way into it? Um, I mean, there's so many factors that led me there and there's so many like red flags that I speak about in my book that sort of made me feel like that was the right thing to do at the time. Um, I mean, when I look back now, I think the main reason I got into it was because I wanted an escape. Um, I didn't necessarily get into it for for money or status at the start. I just wanted Mm -hmm. to leave London, get out of that sort of area that I lived in and also forget that my son had just been taken away from me. Um, so it was just something to keep my mind off that and that's where it started but I you know I can't deny that it you know the money side of it and the the status side of it did keep me there longer than I should have been I suppose. It's interesting that you say like to keep your mind occupied and that ties back to what we're saying about the business side of it you know it it was it's busy work isn't it It, it's you know you could occupy hours of your life by doing tasks over and over and and try and tune out of I imagine the pain that you were feeling I think when you're in country it's very it's very high stress levels it's very high pressure levels for like you said hours on end so you don't have time to think about your partner or your child or your your mum or, you know, problems that you're having because you're so focused on what you're doing, you don't have you don't have time. Um mm. and that's what I sort of craved at the at the start, just that busyness and stress situations. Mm. Even the um the act of like packaging up the drugs through yeah. my mind. Could you explain a bit more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, starting off, it, it well, it literally started with me just doing the cling film part. So the cling would then go around, obviously, the, the we used to call it a peg, which is a very small amount of either crack or heroin. Um, and then I sort of progressed on to actually wrapping the pebs and that was done, you know, very tight and then we would burn it uh, to make like a seal so that if you had to swallow it, you'd be semi-safe then I started packaging them to go to country Um, and the way that we used to do that was 50 uh, white and 50 brown is what we used to call it so 50 pebs of crack and 50 pebs of um, heroin and then that would all get rolled into one with a hundred wraps in it and then that would be ready to go to country and the process of breaking down a a brick or a box which is what we would call it but that means just a kilo of heroin or crack is it's could take up to 48 hours literally non-stop um it was to the point where our fingers were actually burnt away because we were touching so much heroin it was eating away at our skin so yeah it was really intense and I, I tried to sort of push it like push push the narrative in my book that it's not glamorous you know there's there is like another side to it that people don't really talk about yeah that that, that is um hard graph so that's how you got into it and then yeah you progressed to actually going um 
out to the country as well. Mm-hmm. And you said, you know, initially it wasn't about the money, but again, let's be real, the money that is involved is is quite quickly quite a staggering amount, isn't it? Yeah, um, obviously I hadn't really seen that type of money previously. Um, and as a young person, well, a very young person at that time, that amount of money is amazing. You just, I mean, you don't know what to do with it, which is why I think I just, me personally, ended up spending it on absolute rubbish. But yeah, the money, when, when you get accustomed to a life where you're not paying any bills and you're not paying for your car, you're not paying for your flat, you're not paying for electricity or your phone bill, it it keeps you trapped there for longer as well because you yeah. feel like you've got no, you don't know what to do when you leave. So yeah, no. the money is yeah, yeah, trapped so as well. Bit by bit. Yeah, you've given over all your power, I suppose, because you've got nothing that isn't intrinsically linked with this trade. Yes, yeah. So to give the listeners an idea, how much money, how much money did you begin to take in those early, in the early days, and where did it ladder up to? I mean, in the early days, it would be maybe up to a thousand a week for me, um, and then when you start investing your money into the actual drugs, because at that time I was just getting paid like a wage. Um, but then when you start, as I said, investing into the, the drugs, you can make a bit more. You could, I mean, it depends how much your phone is doing, but it could be anywhere up to two and a half a week, three thousand a week. Um, so it's a substantial amount of money for a yeah. young person. Because um, how old were you? I'm trying to put the time frame on it. You're really young at the time. Yeah, I started going when I was about 18. Um, oh. And I did that for five or six years. Um, so, yeah, a, a long time. A long time and a, and a lot of money for that age. Like... Huge amounts of money. And where, you're, where I was so young, I had no concept of investing or... Nobody ever told me, you know, oh, invest your money in this or invest your money in that. I just literally was spending it as quickly as it was coming, which is why I speak about in the book that I, I left with nothing, essentially. No. Because, yeah, just wasting the money. Yeah, that it is it's kind of quite um, transient, is it? There's a bit yeah. that really stood out for me about um, you going to Harrods and trying to yeah. spend the money and that not going very well, but that somewhere high, someone higher up the hierarchy had a, a whatever it, I don't know if it's a black card but the equivalent and yeah. therefore you could get in could you tell me a bit more about that oh yeah <laughs> it was just a hot summer's day and um I was wearing like a little short set um a matching short set but it was tracksuit like a tracksuit short set and um we'd all pulled our money together because I'd said I wanted to go to Harrods and buy a bag and a few of my friends were like oh if you're popping to Harrods um can you pick us up some things? Because the process that the boys would have to go through to go to Harrods or any sort of central London location is a lot more than I would have to do. They might have to bring weapons or send someone ahead to check that there's no one in the shop that they don't like. So for me, I could just go and be free and just shop. So everyone was like, oh, yeah, great. Um, Well, I'm going to give you 5,000. And the other person, oh, I'm going to give you this 5,000 as well or whatever. And basically, essentially, I had a shopping list. Um, I went in there and the security approached me um, and said, oh, sorry, you can't come in here today. Um, You're not wearing the right attire. Uh, Yeah, sorry, you can't shop. And I was really taken, like I'd never been really treated like that 
previously and I know I probably didn't look like the normal type but yeah I still didn't appreciate it because I did have a lot of money to spend in there and I let him know you know I've, I've come here to spend a lot of money and I I would just like to go about my shopping in peace and when he had ascertained that I had like nearly 20 or 25,000 pounds in my bag to spend and I had the VIP card with all the points on it his his tune changed a, a little bit and mm. some personal shoppers popped up to help me so yeah not my finest hour though no and that's a strange thing isn't it again you're saying you've got this money but it's 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 not money that you can enjoy no. truly because I mean, I just wonder what they know. They know why that, what, well, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it, about who knows what and who's in on what. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, especially now I think you can become very rich by doing multiple different things and it might, you know, there's not so much of a stereotype of what a wealthy person looks like. Um, so, yeah, it's changing a little bit, I guess. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking as you're speaking, I bet you could get a tracksuit short set in uh in Harrods these days Definitely, and it'll yeah. cost you a lot of money yeah <laughs> so that's the irony of it isn't it yeah talking about who's involved in what one thing that stood out for me as well is when you're talking about getting a car mm. to go out to the country that the the insurance company you had contacts at the insurance company yeah. so that so that you weren't actually insured but it would appear on the records that you did yeah so like we it was called link insurance um and yeah, it was just literally someone in, I, I don't even know, I don't know the person personally. Yeah. Uh, he was just like a contact and he did that for for most people that I knew. Um, it was a quick and easy way to get around it if you had something like a driving ban, which at the time I, I did. And yeah, it's, it's not foolproof at all. But I think when you're in that world and you know certain types of people, there's a link for everything yeah yeah that's what stood out for me is like yeah I think it's something that really opened my eyes that there's there's literally a whole different especially because I live in London I live in Peckham actually there's yeah. a whole different world going on that you might that yeah the average person walking down the street has oh, no gosh, idea 100%, about 100 million percent like there's literally contacts in every organization you can think of yeah yeah and would they they'd be making money out of those transactions? Yeah, of course. So yeah, the, they would put the insur the the money that we paid was to that person, not to the insurance company. Right. So, so that's a nice yeah, side and hustle. that was a hundred pounds a month. So if he was doing you know ten yeah. ten cars a month, it's quite a lot of money on top of his wage. So yeah, yeah, so he was probably a bit of admin and not much else. Yeah. So he, they they definitely profit, but I mean that's that's why these things crop up because people are willing to pay to get around certain systems, I guess. Mm. Earlier you mentioned about how, you know, some of the boys wouldn't have ever been able to go to Harrods. And as I mentioned in the intro, you grew up, you know, in one part of London. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, that meant that basically that is where you stay. You I know in the book you talked about you'd hardly ever been south or you'd hardly ever been east London because that just wasn't something that you'd do. It wasn't that for me per se. It was dangerous. Um, however, I had nothing over there. There was nothing for me over there. I have no reason to go over there at the time. That's, that was my yeah. mindset, not yeah. anymore. Um, for my friends at the time, obviously they're – they may have run into problems in different areas, which is why you sort of stick to 
a small selected area and you can they they were free to go anywhere it's not like we were boxed I wasn't ever told you know Mm. stay in this particular area I could go anywhere I wanted to and so could they however there would just be protocols to to follow if you were going to go out of town or go to South London or whatever what do you mean by that so like like I said with the Harris thing like sending somebody ahead to check that there was no opposing people in the shop at the time um bringing some type of weapons making sure that you can get parking out out the front or as near as possible to perhaps an entrance or an exit Mm -hmm. um yeah just things like that really just Mm -hmm. trying to look just looking out for your safety I guess and looking over your shoulder all the time in the book, I, I I feel like your narrative changed, or your your journey changed on, on the relationship between what you're going through, whether it, it was gang related or not. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I still don't see myself as any type of gang member, um, which is why I don't reference. Well, I put it in quotations, gang, mm. because I've never connected to that word. I don't feel connected to that word. I don't believe I am in a gang. Um, the police would tell you I'm in a gang Mm -hmm. and probation would have told you I was in a gang. But for me, I was with my friends, my community. And although we were, you know, technically committing crime together and we had a similar interest, which is the definition of a gang. Right. I just didn't see it like that. And now I, I still don't. I still don't really believe in the gang narrative. Don't you? No, I just don't. It's groups of friends. These people have known each other for many, many years. Whatever happens within that circle may be violent, it may be criminal, but I I just can't connect to the word gang at all, mm. which is, I don't know, it might seem strange to some, but yeah. No, so yeah, it's community friendship and yeah. anyone from anywhere can relate to that, especially mm. in the school or, you know, in your teenagers or in your 20s there are groups and I'm not you know how that group behave and where it where it ends up in terms of criminality is different but we can all relate to that that sense of especially at that age where your friends become your absolute life don't they yeah I mean there's definitely a stage where your friends influence you more than your anyone else your parents yeah and I guess it's just looking for red flags in your friendship group but then at the same time if all you've ever known is these same people that grew up on the same estate with you and everyone knows each other's mum and siblings and things like that you're where else are you really going to go you're not necessarily going to go somewhere else to look for friends or or community spirit you're going to just look on your doorstep Mm. so do you feel like the gang narrative is is just a a projection to yes it's just a projection um it's it's hard to it's hard to put into words. I mean, I don't really I'm not really in touch too much now with, you know, these young people that are in so-called gangs. But mm-hmm. back then there wasn't there was in quotation marks gang wars and you know there was a lot of violence between opposing people. Um but I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure, especially now. I think it's really hard to pin down what a gang mm-hmm. is and if it's a projection or if it's a social construct or if people are now owning it and saying, yeah, we are a gang and yeah. this is what we want to do. 
that's what happens though, isn't it? The, yeah. the lines become bur- blurry and maybe then inadvertently it almost becomes an accolade or, a, a, a you know, yeah, it, it becomes very confusing about who owns it and where it came from and, and, and what it means. Well, it's like, is it like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way? Mm. Because if you're constantly labelling someone a gang member, then you're going to come, you know, get to the stage where you're like, okay, fine, I am a gang member and this is what I'm going to do. So, yeah, because it's I, difficult. I remember when you were in the times when you had run-ins with the police or found yourself in contact with the police, mm. you know, it, it was on your record yeah relatively early that you were uh, down as a gang Memo. in a gang yeah and it's it's just a bizarre concept to think oh that they picked you out and now you're in this this spot isn't it yeah I mean I think it's called the gang's matrix I think that's what they call it um and yeah I've been on that for a very long time and I think that's fine I I understand why I was on that I, mm-hmm. I was as they would say, in a gang, I was associated with these people and I was commit, committing crime with these people. So I don't necessarily blame the police for labelling me that because they were just trying to do their job. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, I didn't connect with it. Mm. And what about being a girl in amongst this? Yeah. What was Were you quite rare to be doing this role in a, as a girl or was, yeah, was that unique to you? Um, I saw, of course, other females, you know, doing certain things like maybe holding weapons, holding drugs, um, you know, girlfriends and people's baby mums and things like that. That's the other females that I saw. When I was in country, there was no other females. It was just me. Um, when it comes, when it came down to wrapping, like readying up the drugs for country, that was just me. Um, I was the only girl that had like a stake in the the box of drug like the brick of drugs um so yeah I think I was pretty rare I was quite in demand from other people as well to sort of work for their team and it's kind of a blessing and a curse to be a woman in that Mm. world I guess like in some respects I think it got me out of a lot of tight situations with police Um, really yeah 100% I think I flew under the radar very very well um and at the same time it has cons I mean when you come up you know to a an addict and they put the knife a knife through the window and tell tell you give them the drugs for free as a woman that's quite threatening whereas to a man maybe not so much so yeah it's definitely got pros and cons but I do think I have a rare insight into Mm. yeah that sort of situation do you think the other people you were working with, you were, they constantly saw you as the girl, or do you think you that wasn't on their minds? Were you aware of your be, your femaleness in that situation? Yes, I think yeah, I think I was, and I think there's certain things that, for instance, uh, like having a shower. The the males in the car or the the house or whatever wherever we were at the time were not that bothered. But me, I was like, I want to shower. I want to, you know, things like if you're on your period, you might need to go shop and get tampons, Where whereas they wouldn't need to stop. And mm. just think small things like that. And as a female, I'm not really so much then, but I quite like things like nails and hair. And, I, you know, I took time out to do that. When you're in country, you can't really do mm. all of that. And so I, I, in those circumstances, I was very aware that I was female and I needed 
things that maybe the males didn't need. Mm. And I think they were quite aware of it as well. I was always asked, like, do you want to stop and go to the gym and have a shower? Do you want to stop and eat and things like that? So, yeah, I, I did think they saw me as a as the girl, but I don't think there was any less respect. No. Well, because by sounds you'd earned it. And stop me if you don't want to talk about any of this, but there yeah. was also some, like, brutal attack and abuse of you yeah. in, in the middle of all this, wasn't there? Yeah. Are you talking about, like, the rape situation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that happened prior. Uh, that was before I started going to country and potentially one of the triggers or one of the red mm. flags, I guess, that happened early on. Um yeah, it was a horrific attack and I think it shaped my life for quite a while and shaped my decisions for quite a while. And, and again, you were really young when that happened, weren't you? Uh, I was 15 when that happened, yeah. I'm so young. very, very young, too young to be around that sort of situation, basically, yeah. So, yeah, because I'm trying... I'm. For listeners, I'm trying to go back a few steps because you, you're at school and then you got into a grammar school, which was yeah. that out of London or was it just, do you, was, that was kind of going a slightly away from your area, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was slightly out of my area. It was quite a while, well, not quite a while, it was about 40 minutes on the train. But obviously I was the only person from my area that went to that school and the other way around, no one in that school knew me. They didn't, I hadn't gone to primary school with these people, so when I arrived at this grammar school, they everyone had their friendship groups from primary school and I was sort of the outsider. And I looked different to them. My, I think, being raised with my mum, who obviously English wasn't her first language and things like that, I had some differences in culture as well, maybe, mm-hmm. in upbringing. And I just, start, I just didn't fit in. I was an outsider and I, there was a lot of, uh cliques in that group like it was a, it was a girls school and as you can imagine there's a lot of bitchiness in girls schools so yeah it was really difficult for me and I think that is why I said okay that's fine you're not going to accept me so I'll go back to what I know and which is why I didn't engage with any real friends at school really? and started looking for my friendship group out of school And now a quick break to talk to you about a new jewellery brand called Ana Luisa. As you may or may not know, I live in a gold hoop. I think I started wearing them at the end of school, which by my calculations is 20 years ago. 20, how can that be? And I haven't deviated much since. I've always got at least one set of gold hoops, often several. So imagine my delight when I was introduced to Ana Luisa. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A as a new place to stock up on jewellery. Is it a pleasing price point too? It's nice enough to feel lovely to wear and to know that it'll stay in good nick, but not so pricey that you're afraid to wear it. Items start at about 35 quid. If you're in the market for some new bits, I've been living in a style called Venus, which are a mid-sized hoop. Also look at the Suzanne Huggies. It's what I've currently got in my second and third piercings. And that's not all. I've got a cheeky discount code for you too. Using but why will get you 10% off. And there's a link in the show notes to make it even easier. The website is analuisa.com, A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A.com. I absolutely recommend them. It's beautiful, sustainable jewellery, and there are lots of gold hoops. Did you stick through school or not? Did you stick through to your GCSEs? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, I, I went up until my GCSEs. I didn't stay for sixth form or anything yeah. like that. 
uh, I don't know how I managed to scrape through my GCSEs. I mean, I remember on my leaving day, uh, which I think is, oh, I can't remember what year it is now. I think it's like year 11 before mm. you go and leave for like study leave or whatever. And um, I couldn't attend because I was at the police station doing an interview about these men that had raped me. So mm. yeah, it wasn't like, I'm, I'm shocked I even got the GCSEs I got. I got yeah. 10 GCSEs all A to C, which was a miracle yeah. in the circumstances. So yeah, I did go all the way uh, in school, but yeah the what you were saying how it links into sort of the rape situation is that's why I started chilling with those people because I just didn't find your people my people at school Mm. yeah and so you felt quite yeah it's quite hard it's really difficult to go to school even if you've got your crew outside of it your most of your day at that point is in school and if you're you're feeling like an outsider yeah you do one of two things you try and fit in or you think as you did like yeah I'm out. for me just to rebel yeah and I think like even where by the time I got home from school a lot of my friends had already from like back home they all went to the same school so I was almost a bit not pushed out but I yeah. didn't feel like I fit in there either anymore so yeah, yeah it was it was quite difficult at that point I didn't really know where I belonged I guess yeah, it's really hard for any teenager because all yeah, you want, all, all yeah. you want to be like as an adult brain, you go, it oh, doesn't matter, be yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you don't. You want to just be in the yeah, and to miss out on that after school bit, which is like yeah. the bit, isn't it? I think and it then, sounds stupid, like talking about it now because it's just like petty teenage stuff. But no. when you're in that moment, when you're like thirteen and fourteen, it's like your whole world, everything, <laughs> everything, yeah. Yeah, and I think people really forget how young teenagers are. Like, yeah. although you feel grown up in yourself, the further away you get from it, the more you're like, oh my word, I didn't have a, I didn't have a clue, yeah. even though I thought I did. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, there's some amazing self-preservation going on from you because you're going through this awful time. You're living this quite double life, but you managed to somehow stick your education. You know, yeah. you, you knew to hold on to that in a, in amongst it. So then, yeah, the rape happens. You when did your mum leave the country so shortly after that so I think after that I kind of after yeah that situation and obviously my mum knew about that because I told her and she didn't believe me uh and that was quite turbulent as well between us and I think she just got to the point where enough's enough like she couldn't cope and at the time, I was maybe slightly angry. Now, looking back, I, I kind of get it. Like, mm. I was being an awful child. Like, I wasn't doing the right things. I was making the wrong decisions at every turn. And she's quite a strict woman. So hearing all of these things was just so foreign to her. She couldn't process it. So mm. I understand. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't too long after that that she decided to go back to where she felt safe, I guess. And it's amazing that you have compassion for that because, yeah, she's making the judgment based on what she's got in front of her, I suppose. So then suddenly, yeah, here you are, not very old at all, left to fend for yourself, for want of a better word. Yeah, 100%. And, yeah. And I think it was very soon after that that I, I got pregnant. So it was just a lot of trying to mature when I shouldn't have had to mature. I should have just been living a normal childhood. So, yeah. Oh, that's the thing. It's like hard for me to remember that the story that I've read is your actual story because there are moments when it feels like things are going to fall 
earlier on when things are going to work out for you because the the father of your child Mm. sounds like you were in quite a happy relationship and then and you're like oh this is the moment that it works out and yeah what what was it that led him to your son to then be taken into care um so that was the shooting at my property um that led to my son being taken which I completely understand um it wasn't a safe environment for him that shooting occurred not through my fault really but also because of the people it was because of the people I was hanging around with Mm -hmm. and um yeah I was with my son at the time we I had some friends over they were using my kitchen to cook some crack and me and my son were just chilling laying down how we normally do um and because I was a typical single mum I spent 24 hours a day with my with my son um and we were in bed and yeah some masked men came in my house and started open fire basically um and I kind of I knew that I was going to get arrested and I knew that my son well I didn't think he was going to get taken I thought they'd maybe managed to get through to one of my friends or to his dad Mm -hmm. so that he that one of them could come and get him temporarily until I get out the police station but I don't know, there was other plans and nobody picked up the phone. So he had to go into emergency uh, care. And he never, well, he's he's come out now, but yeah, I haven't haven't seen him. I've seen him in in glances since, but not properly, no. Wow, that's really hard. So yeah, you haven't got any relationship with him him at the moment. Um, I've been going to court for the last few years um, because there's no, he's he's not with social services anymore. He's with family. And um, the only thing that's sort of stopping the the communication is that he doesn't really know me. And there's been things that he's been told about me that are false. And I think his narrative has been skewed a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we're working on it. I send him letters. I send him presents and Easter eggs and Christmas cards and everything Mm -hmm. I can think of. And I'm hoping that one day we can build a relationship. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a mother and a son. Mm -hmm. Even if I can just have a friendship with my son, that would Mm -hmm. be amazing for me and I always say to people that the most traumatic thing that's happened to me is losing my son it's not any of the Mm. things I've seen or things that have been done to me that pales into in comparison to really the pain of not seeing your child it's absolutely it's horrific like being a mum with no child Mm. it's not it's horrible (laughs) yeah it's like the core of your soul isn't it yeah yeah and how old is he now uh my son is 11 oh wow yeah so he's really old well he's really old to me that's really old for like the little boy that I birthed um yeah him being 11 is crazy and him going to secondary school and yeah I'm glad I can be there at a distance at least for now Mm -hmm. and yeah let's keep my fingers crossed that yeah bond yeah, as he begins to ask questions of his own life, you know, you don't know what happens as, yeah. Yeah, he, as he becomes a grown-up. So I think the, the important bit we haven't touched on is is the turning point from you being deeply in, yeah, in in dealing drugs and in that world mm. and, and to eventually getting out. How did, tell the listener how that went. Um, it was a bit rocky. Um, I was arrested in country and with my co-defendants, they got released and I got charged for, uh, I think, about four offences. 
Um, luckily, the judge said, I won't give you a custodial sentence because I feel like this isn't you. But if I see you back here, you will go to prison. So I was like, okay. And I think it just clicked in my head. Like I was getting older now. Um, I was starting to be more aware of the world. And I thought to myself, you need to take this opportunity because you might not get it again. And I had an absolutely amazing probation officer. Like we speak to this day. She is a good friend and she was so relatable and she literally just walked into the probation office and she was like, I don't know what you're doing with yourself. She was like, you're ridiculous. You need to stop doing what you're doing because this isn't you. You're better than this. Like, don't, you don't need to be here. And it was just the way she said it that I was like, she's right. Like, I don't need to be here. And then somebody else got involved from another agency um, called Advance and she was an amazing key worker and the power of like these strong women that were around me at the time sort of saying, no, like this isn't for you. This isn't your path started creeping into my brain. And like, I was sleep, like I'd be in bed at night and thinking about what they'd said in our appointments. And I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I might, I might never do it. So let me just do it as quickly as possible. And literally before I knew it, they had moved me out of London and, that wasn't the end of it. I went back to do very short term drug dealing for two different gangs, I guess you could say. But the way I like to look at it is they say that it takes a woman seven times to leave a domestic violent Mm. relationship. And I feel like it's the same with a gang situation. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to place someone in an area they've never been with no money, no home, no car, no social media, no friends or family around them and expect them to just be like, right, that's great. I'm going to go and get a job. I'd I'd never had a job. I didn't have a CV. I'd never applied for benefits. I had no knowledge of anything. So of course I was going to go back, maybe not to the same people, but all I knew what what to do at the time was to sell drugs, to make money Mm -hmm. because I needed money to live. So yeah, it took another two occasions of going to different locations and selling drugs for me to finally decide well with the help of a a partner at the time to say this isn't for me and I need to go to uni but during those years I did still have my probation officer and my key worker fighting my corner through it Mm. so yeah but it's definitely not as clear-cut as you know you can move someone out the area and just leave them there it's it's never going to work um you know, there needs to be more system, like support systems in place for exiting a gang or exiting yeah. an abusive relationship, whatever type of relationship it may be. It sounds like those the probation officer and the other support worker were absolutely mm-hmm. crucial in kind of enabling you to make that move. They were like my first real, like, inspirational women. Like, I was like, yeah, these women are really strong women. Like, I've... I've I just valued them. I respected them. Mm-hmm. And they were quite young, like they were quite near my age. And to see someone in such a professional p- position who was the same age as you near enough, mm. it's like mind boggling. Cause I was sitting there feeling I'd never felt sort of belittled or anything like that. And they weren't doing that intentionally, mm-hmm. but just, it was like looking at what I could have been if I hadn't yeah. done all of that. And yeah, it was just really meaningful. Yeah. 
And yeah, for, again, in the book, I like that you talk about this like transitional time because you kind of knew at that point that you wanted out. But as mm. you say, you, you, you can't just go, yeah, and, and I'm done. You even when you went back to dealing, it, it felt like you went into that with a different mindset um, yeah. in order to yeah. uh, hey, oh, trying to get to a different place, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, the only reason why I did it when like the first occasion when I was moved out of London was because literally I, I didn't have I had my savings but I didn't have my flat I didn't have my car I didn't have anything and to survive on not a lot uh, I think I was getting about 300 pounds from universal credit which is we all know that's not a lot of money to live on so and all I knew how to do was what or, or the only thing I could do or I felt I could do was sell drugs so it wasn't to get back into it with both feet and be like, yep, I'm going to continue on my drug dealing career. No, it was purely because I felt trapped and I needed the money. So it was never going to be a long-term thing. It was literally just to get enough money to move into my own flat, which is what I did. Yeah. And um, well, there's a couple of things. One thing I want, I realized I hadn't brought up and that stood out for me in the book is that you haven't taken drugs or don't take drugs or never did take drugs. And was that, I think, maybe people just don't understand that to be the case but you're it is definitely work and disconnected from that in every way yeah I think like people never believe me when I say I've never been drunk I've never been drunk in my life like I've never felt that feeling I've I've had a drink but I've never been drunk um and I've never touched any drug because it sounds horrible to say, but the truth of the matter is, is that I would rather, I've always said I'd rather sell drugs than take drugs. Mm. And that's because I've seen the effects of drug taking in my eyes, in front of my eyes since I was a very young girl. Mm. And I just didn't want to be that person. And it just put me off. And especially all the sort of trap houses I was in, I I talk a a bit in the book about my sort of semi-OCD with like cleanliness and things like that and I've got a huge phobia of being sick and things like that so anything that could potentially make me ill i.e drugs or drink is a no-no to me yeah it's never gonna happen and yeah how did that sit with being seeing people who are you know if they're far down the addiction line then they are not well at all it was like I found that very like extremely difficult like my skin would literally crawl I'd have to go outside to breathe um it yeah I I found it really difficult even now like it's something I struggle with um just because of things I've seen and I I don't know where it stems well I guess it stems from trauma I guess from seeing different wounds and being in unclean situations but yeah there is times where some of the customers were really sick and obviously needing their drugs and I had to breathe my way through it basically yeah again it's so different perhaps from what what how we these things are portrayed and and the reality of you being I guess that's what's remarkable about the narrative from you is that it's you're seeing it through very different eyes in a way that yeah we're not usually exposed to but importantly talk about where you're at now you know life on the other side of all of this Life is really, really great. I mean, I think it's not really mentioned in, well, it's not mentioned in the book at all, but after that, um, after I did get out, I did actually 
spend a few years in quite a violent relationship, which is quite a shame. So it didn't really end. My story didn't really end there. But um, now I've got an amazing partner. Um, I have a really strong relationship with my mum. I've got really good friends at uni. Um, yeah, life is just great. I, I love my work. I love speaking to my my girls, I call them, which is like my clients. And we and just, I, d- I don't know. I feel like even writing the, re- writing the book was like rehab as well. It just made me like get everything out. And yeah, I feel a lot freer now. And I, I hope that I can, you know, through my work, help, help a few girls steer away from this sort of thing because it's not glamorous and it's not nice and... It's rubbish. You don't need to live like that. So, no. yeah, it's nice sort of living out what I've always wanted to do. So is that what your 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 work is now, working with girls who are versions of you? Yeah, so I work with young girls in the criminal justice system. Um, so they've all got offences and they're all uh, in London. So, yeah, very similar stories to me, stories of care, a lot of almost 100% sexual assault in my wow. clients, which we all know is prevalent. Yeah um so yeah they are me they're younger versions of me and so I hope that I am that probation officer for them yeah because that genuinely changed my mindset and I think young girls need strong females to look up to and to learn from so yeah I'm really enjoying it and I guess not everyone can say that they love their job but I I do love my job and yeah everything's really good actually yeah it's what a what a wild journey you've lived like a whole life in the very early bit yeah I wonder whether you'll end up just having hopefully just quite straightforward average time from now on there's like nothing I want more than like that white picket fence life literally (laughs) like I just want like a countryside house and two dogs and five kids and just live a peaceful life so it just goes to show that the decisions that you make and you take when you're young it's Mm. not you, you're not going to necessarily want to live like that when you're older and when you become more mature and you find your people. So I guess just, yeah, I'm just glad that the book sort of throws up every red flag from the very mm. start. Mm. And I hope people can sort of, the book's not meant to be educational, but it's meant to be slightly inspirational and just, yeah, just seeing the red flags and trying to learn from it. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, you're reading it and you're like, oh, here we go. You can just yeah. see, you can see it unfurl. And yeah, even if you've, you know, I've not lived a life with, involved in all that crime, but you can see the, how the trajectory, especially for a yeah. teen, female teenager, it, these little moments in your life just send you further and further and further down the line. But importantly, it, it's so easy to write either yourself off or other people off that, that this is the life that you're destined for now. Mm. But as you're a perfect example and hopefully the girls that you work with are as much as you can things can wiggle off the wrong way they can wiggle back to yeah something else no 100 percent, and I think that's why it's important to talk about it because I don't think I mean women are still hidden victims in this gang sort of mm. life so let's talk about it and let's you know put that out there so that instead of being criminalized they can maybe be treated more as victims of exploitation and things like that so yeah hopefully we can change some narratives as well and you're right it's just visibility because everything that we've ever seen or shown or discussed 
the girls are always in the in the background of it and even if they are in the background they are still people being pulled into this yeah so it, yeah exactly yeah it's really brilliant I don't need to say enough how much I really recommend everyone should read it so I've got two more questions for yeah. you yeah number one uh anything to shout out I was going to say any where people can find you but they can't find you that's they the point can't find me no <laughs> <laughs> um no there's I, well, actually, it's, I'm glad you brought it up. I'll just quickly say the reason that I wanted to be anonymous is for no other reason other than my son. I feel like I owe him an explanation before he reads it in a book. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's why I chose to, like, not give my real name and things like that, just to protect my family and my child, I guess. But, yeah, no one's funding me, unfortunately. <laughs> no, see, I was like, oh, I'm going to find them. Don't go find this girl, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's strange for me because I had an image of you from the book and then I can see you and it's like, oh, yeah, you... I mean, is it the same? Do you feel like it's the same or was it what you were expecting? Uh, No, I I mean, you seem quite young now So and and you're not... You're not. You just look good. You look good. For the listener, you came on, Mike, and I'm all over the shop. This girl looks put together. You look look like you've got your shit together even if you feel like you don't. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I pictured. I guess because you're 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 writing and I'm seeing things through your eyes, so quite often yeah. don't think about what what you look like in it. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe you. I can't believe this stuff. When you read the book back for the first time, when you read the first manuscript, could, did it feel like your life, or were you just like, do you do you feel one step removed from it now? Um, well, I've, the confession I have to make is that I've not read it back to back, like no, cover to cover. I've not read it back since it's been like yeah. put together. So all I did was like editing each individual chapter yeah. and then sending it off. So yeah, I've not read it as a book um, because I guess I know how it the ends. Story. Like, you know the story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I don't really watch like even when I've done when I do things like this or other yeah. interviews, I never listen to them back I don't know if it's some sort of I I don't know I just don't like hearing myself or watching myself or anything like that so yeah I've put it out there and whatever happens happens <laughs> that's really interesting it's really but yeah you've not you have written it kind of for yourself because it is therapy but I can imagine why it would be weird to, to reread it front to back yeah I just can't like it's not something I I want to do I've told like very close for friends and family I'd prefer them not to read it mm-hmm. um just because I think it might send my mum to an early grave it might oh, send my yeah. partner over the edge like <laughs> so yeah I've asked them to sort of respect my wishes and, and not read the book whether they do or not who knows but but that's your request yeah because it's my whole life laid out and mm. there's things in there that are probably not easy for someone that cares or or loves yeah loves me you know to read so yeah yeah. and my last question is if you were to have an honest conversation with one person who would it be and what would you say well obviously it would have to be my son um the god it's so difficult because I've not seen him, I wouldn't know where to start, but yeah, it would definitely be my son and it would be to explain, you know, I understand why he might feel how he feels about me, but there is factors that sort of led us both, that led me here and Mm. I would just let him know I'm always going to be his mum and I'm always going to love him, but yeah, that is my person I would pick 
mm. every single time. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah, and it's weird that he was in the middle of some of that journey, you know, both when he was born, but for your pregnancy too, because, yeah. you know, you were doing what you're doing with him with you. It's, um, it's Oh, no, my, yeah, I didn't start going until after I had him. Didn't so I, didn't, I didn't go to country until after my son had been taken. Oh, okay. Yeah, so prior to that, we were literally, like, stuck together like glue every day, mm. all day, and, yeah, it was the best best time of my life <laughs> oh but I mean yeah, yeah there's, there's nothing I can say to make that no, feel like any better really it's yeah. shit. It's absolutely yeah. shit. but as you say you're doing all that you can do both in terms of having your life in in, in order and yeah. trying to make the best of yourself and communicating with him in a respectful way and what the rest yeah the rest is up in the air isn't it yeah yeah we have hope for the future I'm very yeah so yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think so. You've got you've got to really, otherwise yeah. you'd drive yourself mad. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's like there's that book and your story sits with me over and over again. Again, as I say, because I live in Peckham, I'm just seeing the whole yeah. everything that's going on on my doorstep in a yeah. slightly um, in a different way, and just wondering who's been pulled in what directions and what yeah and and what their journey is from there. Yeah. You know. It's like people watching and just wondering where their life is taking yeah. them. I know. It's really interesting. It is. Interesting. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's yeah, it's scary putting yourself out there, but the feedback I've got is, is really positive. So thank you so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Well, what do I feel after that? I feel like a very closeted, is that the right word? Um, middle class person, especially who lives in London in the middle of all of this and that this this world is going on and as Steve rightly said off mic it's not Steve my producer it's like not that we don't know it's we do know it's happening but I guess I'd try and put try and pretend that it isn't because yeah there's a lot of criminality there's a lot of people in difficult situations there's a lot of people getting hurt and experiencing traumatic things and most importantly for me is to realize that a lot of those are women i think quite often that somehow is as out of my mind but um danielle's book and her story and the way she speaks about it does shine a light on something that we all ought to know more about as was pretty clear in the interview i couldn't recommend her book more it's called top girl go have a look you might feel like you've had some spoilers by listening to this episode but really it's just the tip of the iceberg of the things she's experienced and and that's a wrap for this week thank you so much for listening to but why i'm very grateful to have you here join me next week for more honest chats i'm off to go and make myself some eggs i've been in quite a long phase of scrambled eggs but recently uh, wiggled back towards fried so i'm gonna have a couple of fried eggs maybe some avocado living the dream exactly another confirmation of being a middle class cliche and wishing you a lovely day catch you next time goodbye